Hello everyone and welcome to episode 112 of the History Hotline. Thank you so much for tuning back in and if this is your first episode then welcome. My name is Diana Lincook and I'll be your host today as always for a part two on the Windrush scandal. Now if you haven't listened to last week's episode I would suggest you go there first as this is the second part of a two-part series all about the Windrush scandal. Last week we were kind of setting the scene and generally talking about some of the issues with Windrush celebrations and by celebrations I'm talking in reference to the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the Windrush ship which came in 1948, almost to the day if you're listening to this uh, in June 2023. Um, And we kind of spoke and thought about the kind of issues with essentially celebrating something that I was arguing in theory is only a thing that is Windrush Day because of the Windrush scandal and because of what was done to um, quite a significant amount of people of this so-called Windrush generation. So how do we get here? How do we get to the point that people who travelled to England from the Caribbean and other Commonwealth countries as British citizens are now facing deportation and being told that they no longer have the right to stay in this country, even though they were given indefinite leave to remain as British citizens when they first arrived. Arrivals at Tilbury. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. The 1948 Pathé newsreel that was uh, shown and published on TV when the Empire Windrush arrived at Tilbury Docks. Now, as I've said many times before, this wasn't the first ship in this post-war period. World War II ended in 1945 and there were two ships, the Ormond and the Almanzora in 1947, that also brought passengers. This one was probably the most well-documented and it becomes a name for this symbolic generation of people. Another reason the Windrush ship was so significant is because it's the first ship to arrive following the passing of the British Nationality Act in 1948, which gave rights of entry and residence in Britain to individuals from existing Crown colonies or independent Commonwealth states. This opened Britain's doors to millions of people from all around the world, not just the Caribbean. And some of those people that weren't from the Caribbean were also impacted uh, as part of the Windrush scandal. Immigration continued on in the 1950s and 1960s and Britain's immigrant population increased rapidly. This created a lot of racial tension in many major British cities and towns, as you will no doubt be aware from many of the episodes that have been done on this podcast alone. Um, There were also large numbers of prisoners of war from Europe and refugees fleeing communist regimes of the Soviet Union arriving in Britain at the time. So Britain is becoming a much more diverse place um, and these people have arrived from the Caribbean, from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh. um, And it was those people that tended to face uh, the greatest discrimination. They could be easily picked out by the colour of their skin, sometimes by their accents. In 1962, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act was passed. It meant that all Commonwealth passport holders were required to apply for an employment voucher and were graded according to their employment prospects. This act was described by the likes of Claudia Jones, a Trinidadian-born communist activist, as 
and I quote, establishing a second-class citizenship status for West Indians and other Afro-Asian peoples in Britain. But it was clear at this point, within government, there was a pushback against post-war immigration and controls were slowly being brought in to stop and slow the amount of people arriving in Britain from across the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1968 was an amendment to the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962, further reducing the rights of Commonwealth citizens in migrating to the UK. The Act stopped the future right of entry, which was previously enjoyed by Commonwealth citizens of um, the colonies, to those born there or who had at least one parent or grandparent born there. The Act was actually introduced amid concerns that Kenyan Asians were fleeing Kenya um, and would take up their rights um, to reside in the UK as British citizens. The bill went through Parliament in three days, um, supported by leadership of both the Labour and Conservative parties. So you can imagine that there was quite a lot of pressure on them to really curb immigration quickly before an influx of Indian people from Kenya arrived. However, concessions were made in the end for um, the Kenyan Asians uh, and there was like a specific programme that allowed them to move there for their own safety. However, immigration was clearly an issue in Britain and there was a clear pushback. The 1968 Act was eventually superseded by the Immigration Act of 1971. The Act focused on a few things, but what's relevant to this case in terms of the Windrush generation is that um, the Act gave the majority, actually, of the Windrush generation um, the indefinite leave to remain, um, and so the right to stay in Britain. Um, it meant that those who were settled in the UK by the 1st of January 1973 had indefinite leave to remain, and they were lawfully entitled to live in the UK. However, at this point, they were not given a document confirming their right to enter or to remain. And this is part of the problem with actual physical documentation that would have basically meant that the window scandal couldn't have possibly happened um, because people had physical papers like a piece of paper or a certificate or a card that said indefinite leave to remain. This was just something that was known, it was accepted. You know, you don't have to have a passport to be a citizen of any country um, and that was the case for a lot of people that had arrived they didn't have passports they're expensive this impacted uh, people from other commonwealth countries such as kenya sierra leone other countries in africa and also in in south asia as well who were fully entitled to british citizenship um, and arrived in this period of time prior to the first of jan 1973 um, and so should never ever ever have been faced with deportation they came at the invitation of the British government. They were citizens of British colonies or newly independent Commonwealth countries. Their passports were stamped indefinite leave to remain. But for some who were children then, that was a false promise. A false promise it was indeed. And that was um, a clip taken from a piece of content from The Guardian, that was produced for YouTube and it was on Instagram and other social media platforms afterwards, primarily focusing on the case of Paulette Wilson, who was faced with deportation, even though she had been in the country for around 60 years, working and paying taxes for almost 37 of those years. Paulette Wilson's story is just so important um, within this case because it appeared in The Guardian, in this uh, clip actually, in this video, 
um, and the journalist Amelia Gentleman had begun to investigate the scandal and it really did put it into the public consciousness um, and it meant that a lot of people came forward to say actually oh I've been impacted by this I have been faced with deportation even though I've been here for so long and I believed I was granted indefinite leave to remain in this country to work here to have a family here to buy a house here to rent here you know to access health services um, and to live as any other British citizen would. Throughout that brief timeline of immigration acts and restrictions on the movement of people into Britain from 1948 all the way up to 1971, I think highlighted the nature um, and the attitudes in Britain towards immigration, which we are all very, very familiar with. But I always find it interesting to go back, I know it actually isn't that long, <laughs> that much of a long time ago, to 1989, where the first episode of Desmond um, is premiered. Um, and this is the kind of content and the jokes, shall we say, that are being made in episode number one. Well, I don't know if I want to run anymore. <laughs> I just want to rest, build a house and a plot of land back home and retire. Stop dreaming, Desmond. This is England, 1989. And we know nearer building a house back in the Guyana now than we were in 1969. You think I ain't gonna make it? You think I ain't gonna get there? Well, I'm gonna build that house if it's the last thing I do, even if I don't live there. <laughs> it would be for the children so they could know the country of origin, the culture, its roots. So that when one day if Tati decide to throw us out, we have somewhere to go to. And that goes for you too, little foot, Christy. So if one day Thatcher throws us out, we have somewhere to go to. Words spoken in 1989. So it's very clear that people understood the anti-immigrant sentiment within Britain um, and the racism in Britain and, you know, all of those things that lead up to an opinion um, that is is literally published on Channel 4, uh, Desmond's was on Channel 4, um, very kind of flagrantly does Desmond say, you know, we've got to have this house back home in Guyana so the kids can know their culture and their roots, and even if I don't make it back there, one day we might get deported, so we need somewhere to go. We need somewhere in our quote-unquote home to be able to go back to because Britain isn't um, a safe enough place to to rest on their laurels that they'll be staying here um, and that indefinite leave to remain will actually be factual look at that what a prophecy anyway the home office destroyed thousands of landing card slips that recorded the windrush immigrants arrival dates in the uk which is part of the problem and part of the reason why the windrush scandal occurred there were warnings that this would mean it would be really hard and it would make it more difficult to check the records especially of the older caribbean born residents um however they were destroyed anyway um, I believe it was in 2008 this came out, a former employee who has remained um, anonymous and their name hasn't been printed, um, did was given the order to destroy these cards in 2010, the disembarkation cards. They dated back to the 1950s and 60s um, and it was at this point that one of the home office's um, kind of centres at the Whitgift Centre in Croydon was closed, staff were moved to another site um, and these records were destroyed. I don't know why anyone is destroying historical records personally. Number one, not, you know, let's forget the fact that they are very important personal documents to individuals that will one day mean that they can secure and confirm their right to live in this country. Why are we destroying historical documents? Why? Like, 
there are dissertations to be written, you know, outside of actual people's lives and livelihoods. I don't understand on as from a historical perspective, from an academic scholarship perspective, why they were being destroyed. It actually renders me speechless. I don't get it. But remember we spoke about the fact that if you didn't get to Britain before 1973, the 1st of Jan, then you didn't have indefinite leave to remain. So you had to prove that you were here before that period of time. Or unless you kind of came through a different kind of immigration system, whether you had, you know, um, a job lined up and you'd come on a visa or that kind of thing. You know, a person's arrival date is crucial to the citizenship claims that they can make in this generation, in this group of people, because of this act in 1971, right? So they need need more than any other probably group of immigrants that have arrived they need their landing cards they absolutely need them so what would happen to the people that had to prove that they had the right to be living in britain accessing benefits accessing healthcare system applying for jobs uh, housing everything that you need to basically survive in this country um they would obviously be you know putting in say a request for the passport office or the home office to find their record so they could be issued with a passport there was one story i think a man he went back to he wanted to go back to the caribbean to attend his mother's funeral um so applied for a passport in order to do so and it was at that point they said to him we don't have any documents for you we don't believe you were here before 1973 and even if we do believe you we actually can't prove it um so actually you shouldn't really be here you're illegal, you need to be deported. And that is how it was going. So somebody would apply, say, for example, for a passport, or they would apply uh, for a new job, and they would need to do a right to work check, or they would apply, um, they'd maybe go for some treatment within the NHS and and checks are done. Um, And it would basically go to the Home Office uh, for their records. And obviously, there was no record of them because the files had been destroyed. And the insidious thing about it is that This was never going to happen in a wave where every single person whose records are destroyed, it was going to get found out instantly because people, not everybody would make claims to need a passport or to need right to work checks or anything like that. At the same time, they were coming in in dribs and draps and some people would actually already have a British passport. So they would not maybe have been affected in the same way as those that didn't. And remember, you don't need a passport to be in this country at all. You don't need a passport to be a citizen. I've said that a few times because a lot of people, when this scandal initially broke, were like, well, why didn't they get a passport? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Because they don't have to, actually. You don't have to do that. That's not the way that society works. It was only because the documents had been destroyed that in hindsight they should have. But obviously they didn't know that. They didn't know that their documents were going to be destroyed. Um, They didn't know that the hostile environment um, and hostile policy was going to become a thing and that they would have the burden of proof on them. And that is what the change is. So you've got these two things, the landing cards destroyed and the hostile environment. And then if you want to add a third thing, this issue of 1973 and having to prove that you were in the country before 1973, because that law applies to anyone that arrived before 1973. You know, you had indefinitely to remain. So you had to basically prove that you had been here since 1973 or before. Now, how do you go about doing that? And for most people, them having provided 
receipts of them paying tax for 30, 40, 50 years, national insurance numbers, contributions, pensions that they paid into, it wasn't enough. And the Home Office were not accepting that as enough. Some people were looking for school records, photographs of them being in school in England, you know, in a certain date and having to prove that. And it was on them, the burden was on them to find this information. Bearing in mind, they would have been fired from their jobs because a hostile environment meant that if you were an employer, the burden was on you to make sure that everyone you were employing had a right to stay in this country and a right to work in this country. So, you know, you weren't going to take the fall, you weren't going to take the fine um, for employing someone that is quote unquote illegally here and illegally working. So you would have lost your job. How do you pay your bills if you have no income? Some people, thankfully, could rely on a partner. But that takes a mental strain. That takes a lot of pressure. Um, And the health implications that had on people, health implications from the stress. There was a case of, of a man, I think two people actually, that I've read about that died of heart attacks. And the coroners would not link those heart attacks with the stress of being having to prove that they had a right to be in this country even though it's very clear um, that heart attacks are brought on and um, exacerbated by high levels of stress which obviously something like this would cause. Now another issue with health was the fact that a lot of people couldn't claim um, for treatment on the NHS because they couldn't prove um, that they had a right to be here and obviously have free health care. So there are cases of people that died waiting for cancer treatments, waiting for their medication that they'd been taking for years and years prior to this policy shift and their, them being a, having to prove that they had a right to be here and access these things. Imagine a place where you raise your kids, the only place you live says you ain't a Brit. They're deporting our people and it makes me sick because they were broken by the country that they came to fix this land. They came at the invitation of the British government. The passports were stamped indefinitely to remain. But for some who were children, that was a false promise. 37 years of paying taxes and I got a letter saying that I was a legal immigrant. I came to England at the age of 10 and I've lived here all my life. And that was the sentiment I think that I've been trying to get across so easily and effortlessly and beautifully done by Dave on Three Rivers, um, which was on his, I think it was, yeah, his most recent full album. Um, And at the end of that, you can hear uh, Paulette Wilson, who's speaking um, about having paid 37 years of taxes in this country and being told that she's an illegal immigrant. You know, as, as Dave said, it's affecting and impacting a generation of people that will call Britain their home. Um, and whilst they weren't born here, they were born in colonies, British colonies. Um, they were born as British citizens and had every right to claim and take up a place in this country, despite what people might say um, about that generation of people. They had every right to be here legally um, and to, to work or not to work, you know, just to take up space if they wanted to. That was their right. Britain came to them in the first instance. And so they came here. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't just people of that generation who would probably be, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s even, that were impacted by this story. There was a family in in 2019 that The Guardian reported on. And honestly, that it shocked me to the core when I read it at the time. Um, And three generations 
of one family were affected and in, and were threatened with deportation. Um, and you have to remember that because of the way immigration kind of continues on and the acts and laws continue, if you as, say, um, somebody that's in their 30s, let's go there, and your parents arrived during this time period and had indefinite leave to remain because they came before 1973, if they can't prove that, they have indefinite leave to remain here and are British citizens. Um, how then can you prove that if your claim is based off of them as your parent? So there is a very difficult process for some families, this this one in particular, where three generations of a family, two of which are people born in Britain, a 25-year-old um, and her young son, they were seeking emergency accommodation um, and... She was asked to um, provide her passport or that of her parents to prove that she was British. Her parents had arrived in Britain as children. They'd come from the Caribbean um, around 50 years prior. Um, and her parents had been living in Britain and neither parent had ever applied for a passport. Um, so they didn't have them. And obviously their records would have been those pre-1973 arrivals. Um, and so did not exist. Uh, and this this woman, this 25-year-old woman and her son um, were faced with a problem of, of not being able to prove that they were Brit British citizens and entitled to stay in this country um, and, and claim emergency accommodation. Um, and that, to me, is, like, beyond disgusting. It's just abhorrent, really. Um, and I don't really have many words to describe the feelings that something like that and a case like that brings up, but... It's just, I won't say it's not the worst um, because I don't think quantifying people's sufferings is ever, ever um, a fruitful experience or um, thing to do. But there are so many cases um, of people that arrived um, pre-1973 um, and for one reason or another were forced to prove that they were British citizens, that they had arrived before this time um, and that they had the right to live and work in this country. Um, and, you know, so many people were deported. They were not able to do that, especially in the early days where the publicity around the Windrush scandal was just not there. They didn't know who to call. They didn't have jobs, so they didn't necessarily have income to, to hire a lawyer or you know to kind of seek out the legal advice that they would have needed there was no legal aid provided for anybody um because the story wasn't believed uh, well it wasn't big enough um, and so there wasn't really a kind of a need for it or a believed need for it maybe um or an understood need shall we say the high profile or should we say you know better um reported about cases started to come out in around 2017 um with the story of Paulette Wilson, who I spoke about earlier today and who we've um, had clips from. Anthony Bryan, um, who a BBC documentary was actually um, created about um, the case of Anthony Bryan and it was called Sitting in Limbo. He had come to Britain as a child in 1965, been in the country for 52 years um, and was applying for a passport to go back to Jamaica to visit his mum. And it was then he faced difficulty um, and went to work in the weeks following um, and was fired because they said he had, didn't have the right to work in the UK 
um, and he was taken to a detention centre. And the story follows, or the drama follows his story. I think it was written by his brother, who is a screenwriter. um, And that kind of pushed on, um, especially with the claims for compensation, because I think it was finally a really large part of the public narrative. Um, I think that was that came out in 2020. I think it was during the lockdowns in the pandemic. And so actually people gave a lot of attention to it, maybe more so than they would have done had it been published or released at a different time. There are just so many individual stories and so many people that were impacted, some made public and some not, some known and probably many more unknown. Um, And it's definitely the case that this had a monumental impact on individual and families' lives. Um, And there's not really any kind of money that can give you back the time, give you back the joy, you know, remove the former stress you had, bring back your life if you passed away. Some people were deported, ended up homeless in the Caribbean um, and died. You know, these are real people. We might think of them as numbers or just broader terms, a generation of people that were wronged by the government. But these are actual people with individual stories and we can never forget that. Never. And speaking of compensation, this is, I think, the like further slap in the face when it comes to the Windrush scandal. Because not only, you know, have the government done what they've done, but in the time where they can atone and apologise and, and, you know, do a little bit to make it right, the situation with compensation is diabolical. Um, So on record, there are 160 people who have been detained or deported within the Windrush scandal. You know, that's not to say other people haven't been given letters to say they were illegally in the country. They might have lost their jobs, but detained or deported is 160. However, only 60 people. And this is this is actually statistics of today, of the 20th of June 2023, reported in the Evening Standard. Um, 60 people have received financial compensation despite 1,275 people applying for payouts from the government as of March this year. Um, So those statistics are from March, even though they're quoted in a newspaper article that came out today. Um, Officials have actually only paid out £360,000. Of the £200 that was set aside uh, for compensation, that was estimated of how much was going to be needed uh, to compensate those people that had been impacted Um, I would say that that's ridiculous, number one. Um, 5% of claimants have been paid £360,000. Sorry, not each or anything like that in total. Um, Although we know that there's so many more people that have been impacted. Now, part of the issues um, when it comes to this, the slowness that um, the like compensation scheme has been in regards to paying people out because again you have to prove that you <laughs> you have to prove once again that you were negatively impacted by this whole scheme this whole scandal so not only have you already had to prove that you were legally meant to be here had indefinite leave to remain you've now got to prove actually that you were impacted by the scandal to get compensation um, and according to the gov.uk, the Home Office, 27th of January 2022, apparently 41 million people have been paid or offered. Um, sorry, not 41 million people. £41 million had been paid or offered to the Windows generation through the compensation scheme. Um, and over £35 million had been paid to 940 people. I'm inclined in this instance to take the gov.uk's word for it. Um, and, you know, the fact that people are being paid. I am aware, though, that people are being paid or offered peanuts in comparison to what they've been through, which you obviously can't quantify pain and suffering, um, but you actually can quantify loss of earnings, you can quantify 
um, you know, transport to go to court. You can quantify legal fees. You can quantify all that kind of stuff to figure out how much you should be owed and how much this court costed you that shouldn't have if they hadn't destroyed your records and there was no hostile environment. So, you know, a lot of people have been given initial kind of... um, offerings and have said absolutely not that's an insult that's a slap in the face um and so that could be also why there are disparities in those numbers but essentially the numbers alone 200 million that's been set aside to be or estimated and you know maybe they didn't expect the whole 200 million to be used but nothing nowhere close is actually being used to compensate these people for what they've been through furthermore it's actually estimated by the migration observatory at oxford university that 500,000 people um, resident in the UK who arrived before 1971 were from a Commonwealth country. So that means actually it could be, and it's probably not likely that it's anywhere close to 500,000 people that are impacted, but there are 500,000 people that fit the criteria of arriving before this time, given indefinite leave to remain. Um, and whilst they might not all have had their records uh, destroyed, they may have actually had passports prior to that or have gotten one before this uh, hostile policy has come in and been able to prove that they can live here and, and all that stuff. You know, it, this could actually have been even bigger and even worse than it was, which is extremely scary. And I've been listening to a lot of people speak about the scandal and I think about it in a deliberate way. I think that I think it was deliberately done. Um, I've heard people that would completely disagree with me, and that's absolutely fine, um, and actually blame it on just the complete inadequacies of, of government, of the Home Office, um, and just complete failings of just people that clearly hold these roles um, for no reason than the sake of holding the role because they clearly cannot even conduct themselves and run the country in a way that's equitable, fair, and, and with some sense and decency. So, you know... I think there are elements of this story that really highlight and show just how insidious and abhorrent this government are and what they've done. And I think where we are today with it all is even more kind of pushing that narrative because the task force um, that was created to investigate um, the Windrush scandal and to kind of make sure things were being held you know, to account and things were happening in the correct way actually got disbanded. Um, and that was quite recently, actually. It was disbanded by the current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who believes it's time to, and I quote, move on. And I think that really says <laughs> that says what we need to hear about the state of this um, situation at the moment. Now, you know, within this story, there are some positives. A lot of people actually in their hundreds have been able to get the documentation that they need um, for free. Um, in order to make sure that, you know, if anything like this, God forbid, happens again, they would be okay. Um, And so, you know, a small positive, a small thing, even though realistically, actually, if they hadn't just destroyed the landing cars, they wouldn't even have to do this anyway. Um, So there's that. But yeah, the task force was disbanded um, very quietly, actually. But of course, um, you know how journalists are. They managed to find that story. Um, the unit handling changes in order to prevent a repeat of that scandal were told in an online video conference call type meeting that it would be closing at the end of the month in the exact same month that the Windrush is celebrating the 75th anniversary of arrival here and everybody's all celebratory and woo woo yay to the Windrush generation thanks for all the contributions you made um, but here we are we don't actually care about any of 
the deportations or anything bad that's happening to you and has happened to you for the past 10, 15 plus years. Um, so yeah, that's Britain. When we think about the Windrush scandal, when we think about the Windrush, I think scandal is always going to come to mind, unfortunately, and things don't really seem to be moving in the way that they're supposed to. Um, the pledges that were made, that were drawn out by the Windrush review, um, the report done by Wendy Williams, published in 2020, um, a lot of the pledges in there have been ditched um, or look like they're going to be ditched by Suella Braverman um, and the current Home Secretary and her the office, the Home Office. So, you know, it's clear that lessons were not learnt and it's clear that I personally think something like this can very easily happen again. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take for everybody to get the conversation they're owed. I don't know how long it will take for something like this to happen again. Don't have the answers really, but the fact that it has happened to a generation that is credited for their contribution and their sacrifice and coming to Britain at a time that they so desperately needed labour and manpower and nurses and doctors and teachers and bus drivers and construction workers in every field of the country, you know, um, if that's the way that they can be treated, then I don't really know how things look for the future. But anyway, that's been me. And that's been the Windrush Scandal Part 2. I hope that has, you know, really kind of brought home the story of of the Windrush Scandal and it's kind of why that is not really... It doesn't feel fitting to be celebrating at a time like this um, when all this has happened and has not been put to bed, has not been atoned for um, and is pretty much on track for the same mistakes to be made. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History Hotline. To continue the conversation, follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter. The History Hotline is hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz.